0: Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the number one podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Marus, CEO and owner of The Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of The Financial Brand. Launched shortly after 2008, Betterment pioneered robo-advisory services and opened the door for individuals to manage their money without the engagement of traditional financial advisors. Despite the pr- tremendous growth, a valuation of 1.3 billion in 2021 and a customer base of 700,000 customers, a limited market potential and significantly increased competition impacted the potential for long-term sustainable growth. This prompted Betterment to expand services offered and markets served. My guest in the Bank Transform podcast is Michael Royst, President of Betterment. Michael shares how Betterment is using a challenger mindset to future-proof earnings and growth. Faced with slower growth of robo-advisory services, Betterment believes pockets of growth remain from additional financial services and new distribution channels that will drive increased earnings from existing and new clients, offsetting the deceleration of the traditional growth. Mike, before we get into what's going on at Betterment, can you share a little bit about your career path at the firm and even before and how that may have
1: prepared you for where you are today and what your role is? Sure. Thanks for having me, Jim. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure. So, my career started off um, right after college in the software engineering field. That's my functional background before I got into all this business stuff. And I graduated Mm -hmm. in 2008. And my first job was, it was a very interesting time because I went into the um, corner of financial services where you do the actual stress testing of bank balance sheets. That was my first job and it was in 2008. And that was obviously a pretty interesting time to do that. So, I worked in Chicago in a consultancy and we worked for Bank of America and many other major banks and my job was to build distributed systems to do the processing because we didn't have you know the cloud to make that easy and help do the analysis to determine you know how bad they were gonna have in terms of a time if the Fed moved the rates another point or if mortgage defaults ticked up a point. So, right, I graduated and like a month later, I'm telling banks, hey, like you have like a trillion dollar hole. (laughs) So this is gonna (laughs) be an interesting ride. So it was a very interesting couple of years. But I did that for a few years. And then um, for other reasons, I moved to New York City um, because my wife was going back to school. And I decided to try at the startup thing since that was a really big deal there and that wasn't something I really had much access to in Chicago. And so I hopped around a few startups, trying to look for the industry or the niche that was really interesting to me. FinTech was barely a thing, so there weren't really many options. So I jumped around e-commerce, Uh, healthcare, some of those areas. And then it just so happened that a company I was at was being sold when Betterment had raised a big round of funding and was growing. And so a friend of a friend introduced me to John Stein, the founder of Betterment. And we just really hit it off and I ended up joining the company. And I was, you know, one of the first, I don't know, like 25, 30 employees, something like that. So it was very early days and joined as like a, you know, like a senior software engineer. I don't forget what the title was exactly, but like something of that veracity and just kept building systems and products there. and so, you know, people know Betterment for the direct-to-consumer investing services we yeah. offer. But actually, the first big thing I worked on was the, um, we call it Betterment for Advisors now, but it's the RIA business, where we support, you know, lots of RIA businesses, large and small across the country. So basically, my second month at Betterment, a bunch of us locked ourselves in a library. That was like one of the big conference rooms, which was also a library. And we built that business in a few months and launched it in 2013. And so it was a pretty intense time. But in any case, you know, Betterment was growing pretty steadily. steadily on the retail side, the direct-to-consumer side, and the RA business was off to a good start. And so just as things continued to grow, it was a startup, right? Limited resources, limited people. I was very, you know, aggressive about things I thought we should do as a business and was very vocal. You know, as an engineer, I didn't want to build the wrong thing. I wanted to build the right thing and not have, you know, any time wasted, any energy wasted, and just kept stepping more and more to the business side. And then we started launching some other products and some banking offerings. And I just took on more and more of a general manager style role in that in that era. And then just kept growing my career from there.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's very interesting because... A lot of people on listening to the podcast are going to probably wonder, you know, Jim hasn't interviewed many investment companies and and how does it relate to me? And I think what was most interesting about the background of you and as well as a company is that your company is one of the early fintechs that grew extraordinarily fast, but also had a challenger mindset enough to say, we need to disrupt ourselves before we're disrupted, mm-hmm. because the growth curve of robo advising and investment services has a has a peak and a and a trough to a degree, and and you really had to go and you already mentioned you went beyond what your traditional um, product set was. How do you instill that challenger mindset in a company when it's successful mm-hmm. and? build in the mindset saying we need to disrupt what we're doing and move
1: to other areas or else we're going to be part of that, that, that drop off. Yeah. It's really hard to create that culture and it's especially hard to scale it. So for us, one of our big advantages was our founder, John Stein, like he is a visionary and he is insatiable. Right. (laughs) And he, you know, for us, we started off on the direct to consumer market and You know, that was going, you know, reasonably well at the time. So when I joined uh, very late 2012, basically, um, that was, that was going just fine. Um, it was growing. Um, I think at the time we had, you know, tens of thousands of clients and hundreds of millions in AUM, which is tiny compared to today. But at the time, given the size of the company, it was like decent revenue and the growth was great. You were were making money. We were making money (laughs) and it felt (laughs) really good. Which
0: which you look at the FinTech marketplace now,
1: (laughs) that's a good thing to your credit. Yes. Yeah. So that was nice. Um, and we were seeing lots of, you know, um, other folks trying to get into the market. It was still a little early for the incumbents. It took them a while to start to yep. launch competitive products. Not too long, but a little while. But we were starting to see there were, you know, entire startup incubators in New York City where we were headquartered that did only robo advisors. Right. There was a period of time where there were 363. I think was the peak in terms of number of robo advisors in the U.S. Right. And I think even people in this space can probably name. Five, five, maybe ten, if you include the incumbents that have launched products. So obviously there was a pretty big um, washout period that took on there. So, anyways, we were very focused, very resource-strapped, because this is you know a small bootstrap startup. But Stein was always looking for the next thing to do. And it was sort of an engineering mindset. Like we've built this platform, we've built this thing, right? You know, at that time, we you know, a lot of these. Fintech service companies that exist now didn't exist. Right. They didn't have like a very easy way to create a fully disclosed investing account on the behalf of a consumer, right? So we had to build it all ourselves, and that took a while. But what it meant is we built this platform that was really, really versatile. But it was a big R and D investment, and so it was important to us to leverage that and distribute it where we could, right? So when we were succeeding in the consumer market, we said, well, we're going to continue investing there. But the RIA market seems pretty interesting too, right? They're you know advisors trying to do the right things for their clients, and they're not served very well by the technology they were dealing with, right? The custodians they were working with, the wirehouses, and so we saw an opportunity to use that platform over there and to do great things in the same way that, you know, very early on, we were looking for our own 401k as a company, right, just as a benefit to offer. You know, we looked at like the normal players and they were, they were fine, right? They were a little bit more expensive than you would expect. And the user experiences were not great. But more importantly, they didn't really help people solve problems beyond open and fund a 401k. They didn't really help you plan your retirement. They didn't right. really offer interesting advice. And so for us as a registered investment advisor ourselves, seeing this 401k market, we didn't have everything we needed to launch a 401k on our own, but we had the foundation, right? We already had, you know, sophisticated retirement planning advice where we would look at, you know a combination of tax sheltered and taxable accounts and optimize the tax allocation across them, use TLH on the taxable accounts, et cetera, right? Really do good stuff. We just needed to expand into the 401k record keeper space and then we could pull that together and really, you know, leverage our platform even further. So just in searching for that, we saw that opportunity and like we didn't really have any business launching another business at that time. We were already pretty busy, um, but Stein pushed us and we just had that culture, right? Because it's selection bias at that point, right? When that's your founder and he's interviewing people and he's rallying the <laughs> troops, like that's just, you know, it's it's infectious and the people- You don't want to going- be left behind. Yeah, the people who join in say are the people who are attracted to that. Yeah. Um, and so that very much is a self-reinforcing mechanism um, that played out. And, and, and Betterment is really a tech company that focuses a lot on the
0: customer experience and customer care beyond just the technology side of this. That's the foundation of what Betterment was. How do you differentiate Betterment going forward and even today in a marketplace that's filled with everybody saying about the same things coming at it from different angles we talked before the podcast you got paypal you got apple you got sofi you got a lot of players out there Mm -hmm. that are doing things in different ways and addressing the marketplace but everybody's vision is they want to have the complete (laughs) relationship of the consumer (laughs) that meets our criteria for who we want as a target marketplace so how do you how will you differentiate betterment in a marketplace that's getting more and more crowded with people that sound more and more like
1: while maybe not delivering the same way? Sure. It's really hard. (laughs) Um, It's, you know, one of the things I think we did imperfectly early on is we were a bunch of like, you know, very nerdy financial people who really understood how to create the best after-tax, after-fee returns We could imagine, right? We knew how to really think through those problems. We knew how to build real-time tax lot tracking systems so that we could do things no one else could do. Like, you know, before you confirm a transaction, we could tell you, like, down to the penny, the expected tax impact of that, which is something I still don't actually see anyone else doing. Yeah. The problem is exactly what you're asking about, right? Like, things like tax loss harvesting, which became sort of the, like, Like It is like the example of what makes a robo-advisor a robo-advisor that attracts people, right? TLH. Even though there's like meaningful performance differences between TLH on different platforms, it was exceptionally hard to get credit for that. It's exceptionally hard to actually understand the differences too, right? Because these are black boxes in different places. So some people have tried to like track this over time and compare them, but it's really hard. So what we've tried to differentiate on is a few different things. One of them is innovate through different distribution channels itself right one of the things that's true in the u.s market is a lot of people don't choose their their primary financial institution because they like sat down one day and they're like gosh i need a bank and then they like created a spreadsheet with like all of these things (laughs) nobody does that no one does that right like it's basically give me a name let me push a button yeah it's like you're like who can i ask in my life that like I trust enough, or who do I trust most to answer this question, or my employer forced me to use this one company for these reasons, or this bank has a branch on my street, right? Or even this investment firm, right? If you look at like an Edward Jones or something that has like actual branches like everywhere, right? And so that for us means competing directly in the consumer market, like it didn't even matter how well we could explain that stuff because only a small segment of the population was like really taking it on as a considered purchase in that way. So that's part of the reason we started running at these different distribution channels, right? That's why we built the RAA business. We saw an opportunity to differentiate on the advisor's perspective and then provide value to their advisees, right? For us on the advisor channel, for example, it's a, the technology we provide them is great, right? We help them be more efficient at managing their practice, right? You know, they can go in and they can construct their you know, custom model portfolio with the weights they want across the ETFs, and then we'll still do the TLH, we'll still do everything tax efficiency-wise that we can do for them automatically, and it's great, right? We have services like Copilot, where effectively they have a book of business, and it will say, here's the ones you probably should pay attention to, right? Like every like very very simple things like hey this person still hasn't filled out their beneficiaries or hey this person is off track on a goal maybe you should take a look at it right it helps them become more efficient in their business on the 401k side very different market the decision makers are Sometimes advisors, or sometimes like HR professionals, or sometimes if it's an earlier stage company, just whichever executive decided to care about that particular problem. And on that front, we differentiate heavily on the user experience, right? Especially for the end client. Like if that company cares about their employees, not just checking a box and having a 401k, but getting great advice and getting, you know, that tax efficiency and all of these other features um, on their phone that looks like a model. Modern application, right? They don't have a lot of options in the market right now, and so that's that's an area we compete with um, in that way. But we're still also running a direct con- to, uh, the direct to consumer market as well, and that's you know a marketing challenge, and you have to meet different consumers a different way. It's like classic customer segmentation. What are their problems? And right. get those things in front of them. An easy example <laughs> is we went into banking, right? Um, Betterment launched uh, a basically a high yield cash management. Program uh, back in 2019, and we launched like an actual like DDA checking account shortly thereafter in 2020, and part of the reason we did that is because a lot of consumers are shopping for banking products, not shopping for investing products, and that's the entry point. Right, that can become right. the front door, um, and it can also become a relationship-deepening product for our existing clients. Yes. And that's important, not just because it drives LTV for those clients and revenue and it helps the business. Those clients can then talk about it, right? It's, you know, if you've created great experience and new products that they're engaging with, then that's talk triggers, right? Then they're going to tell their friends. So it's it, it, it helps reinforce that referral flywheel that you have going on. Well, it also builds engagement. Absolutely. Which,
0: which at the end of the day, you know, a lot of your competitors, both in the investment services Mm -hmm. side and other fintechs, what they're looking for is not just the product and the distribution, which you mentioned, but they're saying, how do I get people to want to come to my platform more often? And it's easier in some ways to take a really robust, very powerful, but easy to understand platform on investment services. And add a checking account to that mix yeah. because you' you already have the foundation for that engagement capabilities yeah. and you know it, it, we were talking about it before the podcast you know I think my personal opinion is that the primary financial institution that every banker wants to know they look at the checking account sure and we're all being lulled into a false sense of confidence because nobody's a Basically, I have not changed my accounts 15 years of one organization, 12 years of another, and I have no intention to. However, I've greatly distributed what I do in the, in the banking world, mm-hmm. from investment services to, inv- to savings to lending and everything else. And so while the traditional bank may think, "I've not lost this customer, they have lost the relationship. When you look at what you're doing, you mentioned about how you've expanded just in different distribution markets. You just started talking about new products. Mm-hmm. How do you see this all coming together in a, it is, is an investment services foundation, a stronger foundation maybe for expansion relationships than a traditional checking account would be? I mean, are you in a better position, do you believe, as Betterment to go out to the marketplace and say, we have your, your funds Are your best interests of your funds and your financial wellness in mind and the foundation, this is really the Betterment account Mm -hmm. and all the other things are, you know, one's better for payments, one's better for
1: transactions, whatever else. Is that the the direction you, you see going? I think it's tough. I mean, I think you're right. So on the, on the point of the checking account being like the center of the relationship, right? The way I would frame that is the place where your direct deposit goes, the pace, the place where you get paid, which, you know, part of what is implicit in what you were saying there is doesn't really have to be a classic checking account in the way you might imagine, right? There's lots of cash management like accounts, which this isn't new, right? Fidelity has been doing cash management accounts to get around banking for Decades, right, right, but it has definitely taken it to the next level, as you've seen a like very large proliferation of fintechs offering this, right. And it's funny, like it's still interesting in the U.S., right. All of the neobanks, the challenger banks, whatever you want to call them, right. Like, what one has bothered to get a banking charter so far, right. um, Varo, and beyond that, like most still don't see it totally core to their strategy. Um, I guess SoFi would be another reasonable example, right? Um, yeah. If I'm thinking through it now, but in any case. I do think it will remain important where you get paid. Um, I suspect... It's a launching point. It is definitely a launching point. It's where the money starts. And it's it's definitely trending, you know, with the payroll providers and otherwise towards the, like, more real-time payment-oriented paychecks as well. Like, why is it on a monthly cycle? Why is it on a biweekly monthly cycle? Why isn't it right after you check out of your clock? Like, whatever. Like, that. I think that's going to take a long time to play into the space. But I think, like, that will just further break the current like model of primary financial accounts is like, this is the place, I get my check here, and then I can do other stuff with it. And to your point, you're using lots of ancillary services. So I don't know, it's it's really tough to know how that plays off. What I think about at Betterment is where are the places where I can have really high confidence that we can win in the immediate, right? For me, that's the 401k, Right. You don't have a choice as an employee when you join a company where the 401k right. is. And that is so I can like effectively guarantee a shot betterment has with every employee that joins that company for and as long as we maintain that relationship, that we can build that relationship. And we have to be mindful of the fact that employees only stay an average of two, three, four years, depends on the industry and demographics, but we have to like really latch onto that consumer and show them that we're awesome, so they don't just doesn't roll matter where out. you go to work, yeah, because yeah. they're gonna get another job. And there's a reasonable shot that's not gonna have a betterment four hundred one k as well. And so we want to make sure we hold on to that until we've built a deeper, more fulsome relationship. So we we definitely think about those consumers and adding on those services, and I think that's important. I think, but I'm not sure. Like I don't know how the paradigms will play out, but I'm definitely not inspired by the strategies i'm seeing currently in the market by folks to really build the all-in-one bank account financial services account solution to be everything to a the single person yeah that's that is a paradigm that is working in some countries in yeah. the world it doesn't seem to be working particularly well here and i it's it's interesting and it's an artifact of history and there's a lot of inertia to overcome i think consumers generally want it but because there's so many economics to play with in the US. It's so, you can incentivize people so powerfully for different products. I think it's going to be really hard, right? Like as long as interchange in the US is massive compared yeah. to the rest of the world, there's always going to be a compelling BNPL or, you know, at least credit card offer that's going to break up that relationship. Right. And are you really going to lock in on Amex or JP Morgan Chase or whoever fulsomely? Well, I don't know. You're going to get that enticing offer because they have so much revenue to play with to entice you. And as long as that's true, I think it's going to be really hard to pull off the single app to reveal them all. So let's take a short break and recognize the sponsors of this podcast.
0: so I'm joined today by Mike Rice, the president of Betterment. We've been discussing the shift in strategy from Betterment as to, from their origination to today, and also the importance of continually challenging success. So Mike, we were talking a bit about your distribution strategy, your product strategy. When you look at the growth of Betterment going forward, do you see it more around trying to build a broader distribution marketplace or a broader product marketplace for the current customers you have?
1: Yeah, I mean, the answer is both. Yeah. Um, I think for us, well, <laughs> let me give you a very recent example. So we've talked a little bit about the 401k business, at right. right? The 401k business has been around for many years at this point, right? The first few years were tough. It's tough to find a product market fit. Uh, We were were young and thought it would be easy to build a 401k record keeper. It was hard. It took some time, it took some effort. It took a lot more effort to build some of the payroll integrations than we would have liked. So it took some time, but we really found our stride a few years ago, and it started to really grow quickly. And so that was an example of a business that it was working, right? And we were expanding the distribution channels, the way we would sell that product, outbound, inbound, through the advisor networks, like different ways of approaching that problem. But in any case, we were quickly seeing ourselves, you know, while we were growing, we, we didn't lose that let's challenge ourselves mindset. So what we did on the 401k business, and this has been rolling out over the past year, is we're now thinking about it much more as an employee wellness business. So the 401k is the anchor product, right? Yep. That is still... Probably the starting point that most folks are out there shopping. But we launched a couple complimentary products, and we have more in the works. So, the first product we really launched to supplement this is student loan. Um, pay down automation and matching, right? So it is obviously true that a lot of younger employers have student and, and older employers have <laughs> employees have student loans. And so managing that plethora of loans, paying them down, it's not, you know, the hardest math problem in the world, right? Like pay down, like, you know, pay your minimums, pay down the ones with the highest interest rate, et cetera. But it's a pain in the butt. It's easy to forget. And so for us, automating that for folks is very, very powerful. And also, employers can offer that match, right? One of the things we Sort of think about is the inequity on, you know, 401k is a great product if you have the means and the money to save for your retirement. But if you don't, because you're in debt pay down mode right after college, it's not necessarily the best use of every dollar you have, right. right? You should definitely start saving for retirement as early as you can. That's very, very powerful. But employers, we were seeing interesting appetites and demands for, you know, well, actually, I'd like to allocate some of these dollars to folks who are not as focused on retirement savings yet. And so, can I match their, you know, student loan down payment? Things like that. And so, we, we built that product, and we offered that into the market. We're doing effectively the same thing right now when we've already announced, and we'll launch, um, in not too terribly long, Five twenty nine right? So that's another wow. common use yep. case for employees. They want to save for their children's education, right? So retirement to pay down debts. Um, Probably the next product on the horizon would be emergency savings, thinking about that side of it. And you've got like really, like four powerful pillars that employers can use to offer benefits. Cause, you know, the employee marketplace got really competitive, even it's still very true today, right? Yeah. And so employers were coming to us saying, it's hard for me to attract and retain talent, right? Like salary is one thing, but let me do these other more fulsome things as well. And so we, we've seen really good resonance with that strategy so far. And we're going to continue to lean into that. And for an employer, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a you can get it bundled, you can you can you know, unbundle it and just do this one and this one, like however it really works for you and your business, you can you can sign up and we'll make that work. And so that's you know, an area where like that's that's tough, right? Like these are hard products to build, and right. it's tough to integrate them. You have to think about a lot of things, especially you know, on the legal and compliance side, because 401k is still legislatively kind of its own thing, but there's a lot of legislation in play at the state and federal level. Right. So it's a tough problem to navigate. And it would have been, you know, a lot easier for us to say, like, Like, oh, this this is hard. Let's like see what it looks like in three years. (laughs) And then we'll decide whether or not to go into it. But we are like diving in head first and attacking that. And so for us, that is very much a like product, you know, shelf broadening, but they're exceptionally like complementary, right? Because you would imagine like many employees would engage with multiples of these benefits. It's like very, very powerful sometimes one per person and sometimes the collective of these products for those people. Um, But we're still gonna continue to look for different ways to distribute and different ways to think about this. Um, I mentioned, for example, the advisor channel for us on the 401k business. A lot of companies look to an advisor to advise them on what 401k to use. That's something we'll continue. That's a little early for us um, and we're we're gonna continue to engage in that model uh, on the retail side. So when we launched banking on the direct and consumer side, our timing wasn't great. Uh, we launched a very, you know, high rate account. I think it was like 2.67%, something like that, in July of 2019. And then the the Fed sort of laughed at us and like tanked rates pretty, pretty rapidly. Right. So it was, you know, a tough time to grow a high yield account when it went to effectively zero over the next six months. But in any case, we're now seeing like a higher rate environment and that's just a really nice clean simple value proposition to put in front of customers and to use them to bring them into the business so that's a distribution channel for the retail business and we see really healthy cross-sell from that channel into our investing products even organically right we certainly have like a very sophisticated marketing and product marketing organization that think a lot about the right message at the right time and how to engage consumers but even Organically, consumers see that they're like, "This is a great product," and then we have the others next to them, and they're like, "Oh, what's this?" They open it, they fund it. It's a really great, you know, cohesive system um, that drives that organic cross sell, and then we just ratchet it up with the product marketing and the marketing folks, and we see we see that growing really, really healthily. So it's going to be a lot of both. You know, what's interesting is. <clears throat>
0: From the outside looking in, Betterment looks like a very very efficient technology company Mm -hmm. that can produce products and distribute them at a very narrow cost compared to a traditional finance institution. But what's interesting, you go well beyond that. I think one area that people don't realize when they aren't engaged with Betterment is that you're really focused on engagement. Mm -hmm. You use the data, and the analytics, as well as any firm, and you keep the communication going, because I I often say, just because you build it doesn't mean they'll come. You know, just (laughs) because you have streamlined your new account opening process down to three minutes instead of 15, doesn't mean people are going to find it if you haven't promoted the fact that it takes you a whole lot less time to open an account with us, or if you build a new high-rate deposit account. Mm -hmm. People aren't going to know it unless you find the place where they want to buy it, and it can't be. It's not about cross-sell. And especially in investment services, it's about looking out for the customer and a customer wellness journey. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're at the MX um, Experience Summit, and it's a great, great place to talk about this. But the the ability to build engagement—how f- foundational is that to what Betterment really is looking at today? Saying, you know, we we can't expect people to find all mm-hmm. the great things we have. Mm-hmm. Well we gotta do it on their benefit rather
1: than just because we have it. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you build that communication off the data analysts you have? So one thing that's interesting is you know, there's a lot of companies that talk about themselves as being client-centric, right? Which it's great. I mean the alternative is very sucks. client-centric. But it really does. Saying the same the alternative sucks, you know, we don't care about the client. You yeah. know, the, everybody's got to go that route. But what it often means is we <laughs> we're just like trying to thoughtfully build products we can sell, right? It's just about growing the business, right? That's what the client centricity is. One of the things we think a lot about is client outcomes. Um, so we're a very client outcome centric organization. So when we think about engagement, we definitely care about it. And I'm gonna hit on your question very, very directly. But I thought one interesting like tangent here is we think about what does that engagement do for their outcomes? Yeah. Right. If we engage with clients when the markets were very, very choppy and they came to the platform and panicked and took all their money out of the market and it wasn't for an immediate use, but it was still like a longer, you know, term goal horizon or something, that's probably not rate, right? Like it is typically like buy and hold on average tends to be pretty good compared to trying to time the market, right? You tend to, there's like that classic graph, right? (laughs) Of like the market's like getting a little bit choppy. And so you, you know, you buy at the top and then you sell at the bottom and then you repeat until broke. right? Right. Exactly. And we try to help people avoid that. And one of the things we often do when we are doing outbound messaging, but we also don't want to be silent, right? So when there's choppy markets, we will do outbound messaging and we will very much like test that against, you know, this message versus this message, this channel versus this channel versus holdouts where we're not actively trying to engage them and see what happens. And then lean into the one with the best customer outcomes, Um, which for us, we're very customer aligned, right? The more money you have on the platform, the more money we make. So it's pretty, it's pretty nice, simple alignment. and. So for us, it's it's very easy to then choose that right message that helps them do the right thing, which tends to be stick to their longer term goals, um, maybe recalibrate the risk a little bit, etc. But that's that's powerful for us. Same thing I mentioned earlier: um, our tax um, impact preview feature. Um, one of the reasons we we launched that and when we tested it, it's you know. In markets where they're choppy, would people would come in and they'd be like, "Oh my gosh, this feels really bad. I'm gonna sell everything." They would see, like, you know, for the folks that would see, actually, everything's still in the green. Like, this is gonna be a massive tax impact. Yeah. Like, aside from, I'm going to lose my market exposure, which, you know, on some time horizon, the market's gonna go back up. Um, aside from that. I'm gonna have to pay a lot of taxes. Like, this is a double loss. We see massive reductions in customers taking harmful to themselves actions as a result of putting that kind of data in front of them. And that's hard um, for us to actually execute in real time. But that's the sort of thing that's really, really potent. And so that's a little bit of like how we kind of we think very, very hard thoughts about how to avoid consumer harm when driving engagement. But it's also true that we do want people to be engaged because people who are engaged tend to do more good things as well. They set up more goals, they set up more auto deposits, they're saving more frequently, um, and so we we try to engage with the right consumers, the right messages to make them feel that the system's working for them, that the system is doing the right things for them. Right? It's it's a bummer when markets go down, but you can still feel a little bit better because you harvested a lot of losses. So at least your tax bill is going down too, right? And so that feels good. So there's things like that we. Can and engage with um, for consumers so that they feel good, and that's just you know we have our systems with data stores behind our applications that funnel in and stream data into warehouses that are aggregated, and then we build audiences and marketing messaging and strategies off of that, right? So it's just a very you know sophisticated streaming data system that we engage with and we've been we built some automated product experiences that continuously engage based on those sort of data points and heuristics and then we also have teams of product marketing and like CRM experts who are engaging with that stuff at like a human, you know, pace and then building audiences and segmentation and looking for opportunities to help people do better things for their finances and then launching messages and campaigns using, you know, sophisticated martech. It's not just selling.
0: I mean, you were an early believer in content. Yeah. As being, oh, by the way, it doesn't have to sell something if we can inform a consumer saying, oh, by the way, and there's nothing more frustrating in the traditional marketplace for investments than the investment advisor that goes silent when the market goes south. Yeah. You're an organization that believed that the more I communicate with the consumer at that time, you know, for, there's a benefit there because they're not going to jump off, which is really the the end result yeah. of that. But at the same time, you can see a reinforcing – why you're, I'm doing business with you. Mm-hmm. There are very few companies in the financial service area that do that at all, if well, and sometimes it's completely mistargeted. The name may be right, but everything afterwards is a sales message. If you, you don't have to peel back the layers too much. Yeah. It, you're not looking out for me. On the other hand, I, I brought up the fact that I've used Acorn in the past. They don't stop communicating to me about what I should do, how I should do better. And you know, it's in their best interest, but betterment's another one. It You've replicated what the live advisor is meant to do, mm-hmm. but in a way that makes it so that I never turn off that engagement yeah. and or, or, or only benefit for the, the highest investors. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a differentiator that plays well long-term because it's not just about selling. The The sales will come,
1: but you have to prove it on a daily basis. You also, you have to make sure you have the right incentives, right? If you... Are not incentivized in a way that's aligned with your customer, that's not gonna work out for you, right? Right. If you make all your money on net interest margin, it's gonna be really hard for you to tell people Mm -hmm. the the right, fair, objective balance of how much they should have invested in, like, equities or something, if you don't make as much money in those sorts of products. If you make money on the amount of trading activity (laughs) that happens on your platform, especially like consumer-invocated trading, like through PFOF or other mechanisms, like it's gonna be a little bit harder for you to say, no, no, no. Like it's okay. Stay calm. The markets are gonna be okay. Um stick to your plan because you're gonna make money if they trade, if they panic. Yeah. And so that's really hard if you institutionalize those incentives to do the right thing for the client. And they're gonna feel that. They're gonna be like, Why are you telling me to trade again? You told me last time and you told me to buy this <laughs> instead and it didn't work. Like, what are you talking about? And and one of the things I thought about in your question too was, or your point was the 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 sales and the message like almost no, nothing feels worse when you're using like a like a bank and they try to sell you something that literally makes no sense right like you know like i have it already Yeah, it's like and the worst thing. I'm sure there's like some reasonable business justification, right? But like you have, I am watching my credit report on your system. Why are you sending me balance consolidation offers? You know I have zero carrying (laughs) like I have zero debt. What are you doing? Like you're mailing me nicely printed direct mail campaign packages. Right. What is happening? Right. Um, you You're know, I don't need this product. And, and, and today, more than ever, because
0: when Netflix listens to what I I watch, yeah, and they can immediately tell me what else I'd like to watch, mm-hmm. even though it may not be something I would rec- you know it interesting. because we have two places and one place has Netflix and the other one has DirecTV. The differences are stark, where on one, I got I to gotta record anything even if I don't want it yeah. and I'm missing all the things I really like. Mm-hmm. On the other one, I'm finding all the things I like and I can go back and record later or, or see something later. Yeah. But, it, but it's interesting in the, in the financial marketplace today how we miss that opportunity to use content as a driver for engagement and for sales mm-hmm. without pushing the sales. And so... You know, as we wrap up, if I was to have this interview again, two years from now. Sure. Where is Betterment and where do you want it to be two years from now? And I hate to go any further than that because I've
1: learned, we've all learned, any further than two years out, there's too many ifs. That's true. I actually find it easier to think a little bit further out. Maybe it's just idealism. But what's really, really hard is like thinking about priorities the next three to 12 months. Thinking about ROI, customer matching, market events, et cetera, and like what's the right sequencing. But the giant plethora of things I'd love to have on the platform and the services is on a three year time horizon. I'll be wrong, but I have like a sense for what I think that is, right? I think it's. Let's start with the four hundred and one k business, right? That I said is uh, transitioning. It's called Betterment at Work, and it's it's effectively an employee wellness business, yep. right? We have other products I mentioned. We'll be launching, um, and I think we'll continue to go further there. But I think I I am really really excited for a slightly more certain legislative context where we can provide really cool compliant equity centric benefits, right? Where you can say as an employer, I'd like to provide this level of benefits, this level of matching, and we as a as a product can have a conversation with your employee about their priorities and what's going on in their life and then we can just magically allocate those dollars and those matches and everything for them, no questions, right? The right goes towards your student loan down payment, the right's going towards your emergency savings to make sure you're you know, um, insulated from any you know, emergencies, et cetera. That's just a beautiful system that works well for that consumer and they are far more financially independent or at least resilient than they would otherwise be. So that's a big outcome on that business that I think would be really, really cool. On the consumer space, there's a lot of areas I really wanna round out. One of the areas we're going deeper into right now is I'm going to use the term a little bit generously, but I'm going to say alternative investments. And the first one we're going to launch is crypto, crypto. right? We acquired Makara. The version of that that's going to launch on the Betterment platform is going to come out rather soon. I can't give you a date just well, yet. What's but interesting, I'm looking at the timing of this and it sounds very similar similar to your high rate account that came out.
0: When there yes, were, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, but the thing is, I know that you're looking because
1: it's a longer-term play. It's yep. it's not it's the, also oh it's the time. You're not market timing this. But it's also sort of similar to what you saw play out last year with the meme stocks, right? Yes. Everyone in 2021 thought or learned, not everyone, but like a lot of people learned a lesson that they're a great investor. They're a great stock picker, which was like not a great lesson. And they very quickly learned they were wrong, right? Yeah. That's effectively the right way to think about the crypto market right now. Right. So for us, offering like a truly diversified managed crypto offering, if you want exposure to the crypto asset class, let me use that term, um, this is the right way to do that right. on a long-term right. horizon. Yep. And we're going to do it thoughtfully. We're going to tell you, you shouldn't allocate more than this in your portfolio to it. We're going to manage it. We have like very thoughtful people who are experts in this Looking at the portfolios, modeling them, thinking about the ongoing management there. And we'll we'll launch that product and that'll be great. On the longer term time horizon, I would imagine other alternative investments are coming online right. that look similar to think about that. We'll also think about the right composition of that in taxable and tax-sheltered natures, right? One of the things that's maybe a little counterintuitive is that, you know, probably not for your audience, but maybe for the average American, is the more volatile an asset class is, the more it's appropriate for your longer-term investment goals, yeah. right? Because you get to ride that volatility and uh, capture that risk premium that you're hopefully paid for over right. time, right? And then you should draw down the risk when you get closer to your goal. But it's if you've got thirty years, it's a good thing to engage with. So I think it's actually going to be interesting to bring more and more alternative exposure to longer-term goals and investments. Um, and so I think we'll go much much further there. Um, I think on the Advisory side, we need to just keep going further on, I mentioned the copilot functionality. There's just so much more we can do there, yeah. to your point about engaging with data and surfacing the right message for the right time that will maybe be... Uh, Delivered via your human advisor, um, we can just empower them to do so much more than we're doing today. So I think that will be true. But I think we will be really ramping up these distribution channels, providing a lot more functionality. Some of these things are kind of on the periphery between like expanding the products we have versus new products. Like right. is the alternative investments, a new product? I don't know. I'm not sure how to categorize it. What the taxonomy should be. But it'll be a large expansion of the investment sophistication we offer um, and continuous improvement of all of our financial planning and advice. Along the way, and the same will be true of our banking products, right? There's only so much, you know, innovation really needed for the high yield savings account right, style right. products. Um, but there's definitely work <laughs> you can do on cash management broadly. And a lot of that's MVP. behind the scenes, yeah. Is how you propose it to your your prospects and your current clients as well. Yeah, I think this is going to be true for Betterment. It's going to be true more across the industry too. You know, cash movement's going to be pretty much instant, twenty four seven, in not too terribly long in the United right. States. I think equities won't be there, but It'll be closer. Um, and so I think those, those are some of the things that come to mind when I think about what we'll, what we'll be leaning into the next couple of years.
0: You know, thank you very much for being on the show. I know that you, you probably had questions about, OK, so why am I going to be interviewed <laughs> by a banking podcast? For those of you who stuck around, um, the, the real message here is everything Mike said, it's always in motion. There's more product development. There's distribution channel development. There's testing the markets and getting out of things that may not work and the importance of content for the benefit of the consumer. That's the message to all financial institutions. And Mike, thank you so much for being on the show today. Appreciate it, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to give our podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app also be sure to catch my articles on the financial brand and the research we are doing for the digital bank report this has been a production of evergreen podcast a special thank you to my producer leah Hassage, audio engineer sean Hoffman, and video producer will pritz until next time remember even market leaders must challenge the status quo to remain a market leader We'd never admit it, but deep down, we all get at least some pleasure from bad things happening to somebody we
1: don't like. History's full of stories about bitter enemies being mutually horrible. Usually nothing good comes of it, but sometimes, sometimes, you get soul singers
0: James Brown and Joe Tex, or 17th century nun Sor Juana, and the entire Catholic church duking it out and dramatically changing our world. On Beef with Bridget Todd, we tell the stories of those petty feuds behind some of the greatest art, innovation,
1: and global events. Listen to Beef wherever you get your podcasts.